Now there's things we do week after week, day after day, where it is our actions are compelled by the love that we have for that individual. You know, for a parent, it may be, I don't want to cook dinner when I get home from a long day at work, but I know my kids are hungry. And so your love for your kids compels you to cook dinner. Otherwise, you would just scrounge around in the refrigerator. You know, as a husband, you get that honeydew list. Your love for your wife compels you to get that list completed. Maybe some of you have that list that you have to do this afternoon. You think, oh, I love my wife. I want to keep her happy, so I will complete the list. Maybe it's other things. Maybe it's, you know, talking to someone on the phone, you know, reaching out to a loved one. When my wife and I first got married, both her grandmothers were still alive, and my wife was really good about calling her grandmas, and she would talk to them for hours. I'm like, what are you talking to them about for so long? And she's like, they're lonely. I love them, and I want to talk with them. The, the love, the, the things that we do for our people we love, that the love compels us to do things that we otherwise wouldn't do. And we're going to look at how the love of God compels us today. We're going to do something I really enjoy, and that's walk through a text of Scripture that captures kind of the center of who we are and what we do. You know, God really doesn't have any needs. What he wants from us as a people, God's people, is to go all in. To get in the game of God's mission with our lives. That is what he is looking for. I've used this illustration before, but I love it so much. You know, it's, it's how we eat breakfast. Anybody had bacon and eggs for breakfast this morning? Anyone? A few of you, I heard an oh yeah. Had bacon and eggs for breakfast? You see, both the chicken and the pig had a part in that breakfast this morning. But the chicken only made a contribution, whereas the pig went all in. <laughs> the pig went all in for breakfast. And so we want to be pigs for Jesus. That's, a, that's my corny dad joke for the day. So we are, want to go all in. We want to be in the game in our Christian life. So we're going to pick up in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning. We're going to walk through. To me, this is one of the most powerful passages that Paul wrote um, in all of the New Testament. Let's start reading here. He said, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And if he died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Down verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us 
the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a powerful passage that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And really, Paul kind of gives us three things here in this, this text. He gives us a motivation for what we do. He gives us a measure and a mission for how we are to live. And all of this centers around this message for us of who we are as believers in Christ. So we have a motivation. We have a motivation to live sacrificially. That motivation is the love of Christ. Paul said at the beginning when we first started reading, the love of Christ controls us. It controls us. The love of Christ has become our guiding, our motivating principle. And we start to see all of life through the love of Christ. And what does it mean to be controlled by the love of Christ? It means that he has captured first place. In your heart. Paul never seems to get over his salvation experience. He seems to be continually like in awe of the fact that God would save an awful, wretched person like Paul. That not only would he save him, but then that he would want to use him. He said here, we are convinced that if Jesus died for us, then those who live shall no longer live for themselves. You know, this reminds me of a story. You know, you came home and your neighbor was sitting on your front porch and he said a guy came by that owed you money. And your neighbor said, so I paid your debt. What will your response to that person be if your neighbor said, I paid your debt? It depends on how much they paid. If the postman stopped by and said, you didn't put enough stamps on the letter, you, owe, you still owe the amount for the stamp, so I paid the cents for you for that stamp, you would pat him on the back and say, you're a really good friend. That was one of my bills. That was my mortgage. That would have been late had you not put stamps on that letter for me. On the other hand, if they say the mafia showed up, at your door while you were gone and it seems like your past gambling debt had caught up to you and you owed one million dollars to the mafia for your gambling debt and your neighbor said don't worry about it i took care of it and i paid your debt a simple pat on the back or a simple pat on the back would not seem sufficient enough of a thank you to your neighbor who just paid that debt. You would feel like you need to drop on your knees and say, whatever you want from me, thank you for paying my debt. You know, sometimes I think about what it would be like to stand before Jesus and look at him as 
he paid my debt. So much more than we could ever imagine. We think about a million dollars with the mafia. Our mind cannot imagine, cannot even fathom the debt that we owed to a holy God. And Jesus paid that debt. When we see the nails, scars from on his hands and on his feet, from where he took upon himself the wrath of God for my sin. When we see that the love of Christ, because of what he's done for us, should control us, should control every aspect of our lives. You know, that's, that is our motivation for living. Not only is it our motivation for living, but it is our motivation for our giving. You see, we don't give because God has needs. He doesn't. Our God owns everything. He does not need what we have. Our God multiplies the loaves and the fishes and pulls tax payments out of the mouths of fish, as it's recorded in the Gospels. He never comes to us with a handout saying, please, sir, can you please spare some cash just a little bit? Don't give because God has needs. We give because we declare his value to us. The love of God controls us to be a giving people. We are to give. So I ask, what does your generosity say about the value of Jesus to you? Jesus said, if you want to know what you really love, follow the trail of your money. You say, that means I love the, the federal government, Pastor Robert. <laughs> I mean your discretionary income. What does your giving say about what Jesus values to you? Where you place your treasure is where your heart is. To be controlled by the love of Christ means when the love of Christ controls you, he has captured first place in your heart. And as love pours out of you toward others. How do you respond to those around you? Does the world see you as someone that loves others? Paul saw in people only two categories in life. He saw those who are saved by the work of Jesus and those who need Jesus. Those that are saved and those that are lost. See how he says it in verse 16, we regard no one according to the flesh any longer. He's saying nothing about the fleshly attributes of someone matters. It's a matter of whether they're saved by Christ or whether they're not. That is the way that he looks at the rest of the world. In other words, we don't see people according to the normal categories. Rich, poor, powerful, weak, Republican, Democrat, white, black, educated, or blue collar. We only see those as those who know Christ and those who don't. That is the category by which the Apostle Paul saw his world. 
1912, as the world got back, as, as word got back to England that the Titanic had sunk, people with relatives began to panic. And a gigantic chalkboard was set up in downtown London with two columns. At the top of the two columns read two words. On one side, saved. On the other side, lost. That was it. That is the way the Apostle Paul is challenging us to look at the world around us. He says, I was one whom the love of Christ plucked up out of the waters of judgment. So now his love for other perishing people controls the agenda for my life. If you really believe the gospel wrecks your life and you can never be, see other people the same or your life again, that should be displayed in the way that you treat others because you cannot help but pour out your love on other people. Does the love of Christ control you? Does it control you in the way you live your life and the way you treat the people around you? So we see, first of all, we see a motivation to live sacrificially, and that is our motivation is the love of Christ. The second thing is we have a measure for our sacrifice, and that is the measure for our sacrifice is Christ's love for us. Christ's sacrifice for us. You know, two words characterize Paul's description of Christ's sacrifice for us in the verses we read. And that was total. Christ gave it all and substitutionary. In verse 15, he died for us. He gave it all. It was total. Our response ought to be something of a measure in the same. God, I'm giving my total life to live for you, for the mission of God. Jesus gave it all. Another word was substitutionary. Paul writes one of the greatest verses in all the Bible in verse 21. He said, for our sake, he made him to be sin, referring to Jesus, who knew no sin. He was perfect. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus' sacrifice was an exchange for us. On the cross, he took our place of condemnation. He took the place that we should have been. He became our sin and he gave us his position of privilege, we became his righteousness. We call that the great exchange. He gave us his righteousness and took upon us, took upon himself our sin. At the cross, God crossed his hands. He gave Jesus what was coming to us and to us what was coming to Jesus. What a great trade. No better trade could we ever ask for in this human life. And don't miss what Paul is doing here. In this context, he's using this as an example for our generosity. A believer takes what they have earned, what they deserve, and they bestow it upon others. 
they cross their same hands like Christ gave us his all and took upon himself our sin. The benefit of my success or my talent or my intellect will not be for me but for the lost world. Going back to the way Paul sees the world between those who are saved and those who are lost. So what God has given to me, I'm going to use to tell others about this great exchange. This thing that God has done for me. So let me ask you, is that the way you see your life? Is that the way that you see the resources that God has given to you? The world says that that kind of mentality is crazy. To leverage what you have for the good of someone else? That's a little nutty. Why would you do that? Well, in fact, the context of this passage is Paul, you know, Paul is defending himself against the charge that he is crazy. In verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. He's like, it's for God we do these things. When is the last time your generosity was so great that it made someone question your sanity? When's the last time? You know, the, the thing I, I love is when you look at the giving, the charitable giving across our country, Christians in America far outgive non-Christians to charitable causes. It's astonishing how much more Christians give. It comes back to this principle that Paul's talking about here in 2 Corinthians. It's because of Christ. Christ controls us. We have something different about us. Those that are saved versus those that are lost, as Paul is talking about. The love of Christ controls us. C.S. Lewis, the famous writer, he said, how do you know you're giving enough? He said, two ways you know you're giving enough. Number one, it scares you. And number two, people question your sanity. So that was a good way of looking at it. So we have our example, Christ's sacrifice for us. And then we see the mission in our sacrifice, and that is the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation, this word that literally means to make things right. To make it right. Paul says to the church, God gave the ministry of reconciliation. He's saying God gave us the mission to tell the world of how God wants to make the relationship right with them through Christ Jesus. The church has a unique, important remission, and that is reconciling people to God. That's what Paul said in this passage. Bringing people to God to tell them about Christ so they can have a right relationship with God. The gospel declares that Christ bore our sin in our place, but it doesn't do them any good if they never hear about it. It is the important mission in the world. All of the ministries, apart from that, if they are not focusing on that singular purpose, will not be completely fulfilling. 
helping people out of poverty, helping them get ahead. These things are wonderful and necessary, but if the purpose of those is, not, is apart from reconciliation to God, those benefits are short-lived. They're temporary things, temporary things on this life. We must continually be pointing them to something eternal, something that will live with them through eternity, and that is how they can be reconciled to God. This is the ministry that God gave to the church. The church is his primary instrument for reconciliation. Churches make disciples of Jesus better than any other organization on the planet. Which this means this to Christians. Because the ministry of reconciliation is the most important ministry, and because it is the ministry given specifically to the church, the primary place of our investment should be our local church. Should be this is where we participate in the mission of God. A lot of organizations do good in the world, but my primary calling is to invest in the ministry of reconciliation. The church is God's plan A. There are a lot of great other organizations that, that we support that are Christian organizations that are doing good work that I highly encourage you to support, but the Bible specifically calls the church as the mission of God, the mission of reconciliation. So this will be my primary focus for my life, and my resources. Bethel, do you realize how important our role is? How important our role is just in our community. We, with all of our problems, all of the problems of the people surrounding you, are God's plan A for reconciliation. This church is God's plan for our community for reconciling people to God. You see how important your role is in this plan and in this mission. And we cannot do this mission without you being involved. You know, we as a people must be a generous people. To be a disciple of Jesus means you get in the game with your life on the mission of God. And part of that includes your generosity, your giving. But what I'm getting ready to say, if you can't hear this without thinking I'm trying to get your money, that I want you to apply what I say today and give it somewhere else. Because my number one motivation here is to get you as a generous person. I want you to take your heart's attitude from this to this. We as a Christian people are called to give. And I want us to be a giving pe people. Seriously, if it's more important, it's more important to me that you learn to be generous and invest in the kingdom of God. And if you have a problem with what I'm going to say about giving, then give it somewhere else. God will take care of us. I am not worried about that. So please feel free, I urge you, if this is a problem from you, apply it to somewhere else, but be a giving people. We need people who will be generous. You know, there's a, 
a, a thing called the generosity ladder that I think it represents growth in the Christian life in generosity and sacrifice. And these are not rungs you slowly ascend to get to God. That's not the case. These are simply ways you chart your heart in your giving. And before I give you this, I want you to just, I want to say, I, if you are not a believer today, I'm not talking about you. If you're not committed here, or if you are committed here, but you feel like this is a, a manipulative way to get money from you, I want you to say, I'm going to say it again, give it somewhere else. But I want your heart to be a heart that gives. We have someone, people here today, that this past year you were an initial giver. This was your first time giving. Many of you, for the first time, you made a significant investment in the kingdom of God through your local church. And this is huge. And this is a big deal. And I want to celebrate that. I want to thank you all for giving this past year. The next rung is someone who is a consistent giver. This is someone who has gone from an initial gift to a recurring gift. This is someone who's made giving a part of their regular budget. Some of you have, have gone from first-time givers to reoccurring givers. Some of you this next year, this is something I want to challenge you. Say, when I'm filling out my monthly budget, I want to be a reoccurring giver and play a part in the mission of God in my community. We have another one, which is the next step, which is an intentional giver. This is someone who is consciously trying to grow. They're asking the question of how their giving matches up with other priorities in their life. How does my giving compare to what I spend on my vacations, my eating out, my clothes? They want their spending to match or exceed their other priorities, so they set a goal. Intentional givers set goals to grow to. They set a goal. They say, I want to see my investment in the kingdom of God at least equal to this, this next year. I want to see my investment in the kingdom of God grow to this. Maybe you choose a percentage. But intentional means consciously trying to grow. An intentional giver is also someone who is actively listening to the needs of those in the church. We have people in this room this morning who have needs that God will put a burden on your heart to meet those needs. An intentional giver is someone who is intentionally listening through their conversations to how they can be a blessing to the body of Christ. Not just the body of Christ, but outside. Remember, the love of God compels us. How can we take our giving to those who are lost? Show them the love of God through our giving to tell them, to reconcile them to God. That is an intentional giver. When they see our generosity, why would you do that for me? Why would you give that? I don't understand. Let me tell you about my Jesus and how he gave it all for me. That's why I'm able to give to you. An intentional giver. Then we have a sacrificial giver. Someone in this category is no longer thinking of what am I supposed to give, but rather what am I not giving 
and why. The sacrificial giver is less concerned about percentage and looking at what more they can give. The famous pastor and writer Rick Warren, you know, he wrote a couple of books, The Purpose Driven Life, which sold millions of copies. Many of you have probably read that book. And he also wrote another book called The Purpose Driven Church. And he made millions and millions off of these books who are still top sellers today. And he made the decision, he said, I decided that my wife and I, that we would not increase our lifestyle one bit. He said, I still wear a $14 watch. I still drive a 15-year-old pickup truck. And he and his wife increased their level of giving incrementally each year. And they give, he calls it reverse tithing, because we give 90% of our income away and we live on 10%. Finding a way to sacrificially give, giving it away, a sacrificial giver makes changes to their lifestyle to say, you know what, this is just temporary, but what I invest in the kingdom of God is eternal. I want to be a giver, a sacrificial giver makes changes to their lifestyle to say it is about God's kingdom. So I ask you, where are you on this ladder? Where do you want to grow to? I think we should be challenged all the time to where can we grow? We as a people, because of our sin nature, we automatically think about what? Me, 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 me. It's just natural. It's our natural sin nature. But what shows us to be different is what Paul says is that we are controlled by the love of God. God gave it all. How can we show the world around us through our giving? I'm convinced that if Christ died for me, then those of us who live should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. So where do we need to grow in response to the generosity of Christ and the investment of your life in his mission? I'm going to ask you, are you ready to get in the game? Because we need people that are willing to get in the game with their generosity to help us reach.